Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello and welcome to History Rage, the podcast where our heritage community takes a good hard belt to everything that we misunderstand. The podcast where myth and misunderstanding is slashed across the face with a doctored hat. I am public historian Paul Bavel, and I'm here with our very own Midlands menace, our very own man with the red right hand, Kyle Glover. Hello. And last week, as you'll recall, we took into our sights the world of film and cinema with the guys from Fighting on Film. And this week, we're staying with the popular culture theme, but we're taking on one of the most successful and critically acclaimed TV shows the 21st century has seen. And our guide and bodyguard into the seedy underworld of historic Birmingham today, we are joined by broadcaster, emeritus professor of community history at Birmingham University, and author of, and hint for what's coming up here, Peaky Blinders, The Real Story, Professor Carl Chin. Carl, welcome to History Rage. Thank you very much for inviting me, both of you. And I'm looking forward to having a good chat with you. Good. Feeling angry? Uh, I don't really do angry, but yeah, I'm getting a bit et up. How's that? Excellent, excellent. We're, that? we're here to lower your blood pressure. That's great. Right, so, well, I came across your work, like I imagine quite a few others in the heritage community, when you sort of came front and centre to take on tonight's rage, and I heard your history hit interview with Dan Snow. And then I went forward and then I read the book, and then I listened to the book on audiobook, which is even better because you were narrating it. <laughs> I was like, really got that passion across there. Thank you. Uh, but you do actually have a long career behind you. Can you give us a short history of you? Yeah, I'm the first one in my family to go past school at 15. I'm very fortunate in that. My Dad was from Sparkbrook, uh, but now regarded as an inner city part of Birmingham. The family had lived there for many years and were originally factory workers, but became illegal bookmakers. And I went into the bookmaking business when it was legal and eventually left that to become a writer, historian, etc. My mum was from Aston, another tough part of Birmingham. Both mum and dad came from very soft streets. Because I grew up as the son of a bookie, dad was doing very well. We grew up economically well off. But culturally, we were very working class. 
And mum and dad drilled it into me from the earliest moments I could be that my loyalty lay with the people I come from. And that was made all the stronger by the fact that mum's family, my nan, my great-grandparents, great-uncles and aunts were still living in back-to-backs till the 60s and then in council housing thereafter. Dad's family was better off, but again had come from a poorer working-class background and, it, and we worked in Sparkbrook right through to the 80s. So I feel, although economically I've done well, although I suppose in terms of my career I'm regarded as middle-class, culturally I still see myself as a working-class track. And what kind of sparked that jump from the bookmaking business to a PhD in history? <laughs> well, as I said, I was the first one to go past 15 at school. I was lucky enough to go to a grammar school when there were a lot more grammar schools mm-hmm. around. And the family were, were thrilled that somebody at last had got a chance to get an education. And they'd all worked hard for that. I really wanted to go to work in the betting shops where I'd worked with dad on a Saturday and a school holidays from when I was 13. But we had a couple of armed robberies. I had a gun at my head twice. We got attacked on another occasion by a bloke with machete and then a knife on another occasion. And the game was changing. It was becoming a a business for really the big bookmakers. And although I got my degree, I'd always worked part-time. I was married young. Me and my wife Kay met in Benidorm in 1977. And on the third occasion we met, I proposed, and she said yes, and we got engaged. You didn't waste time, did you? No, 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 no. (laughs) So we had kids young, and I always felt that it was the right thing to do to go to work. But Dad Hmm. sold up in 84, and by then I got my degree, and I'd been working kind of on my thesis, but not with great enthusiasm. But being out of work actually forced my hand. And it's not something I'd like to go back to. It's a, an upsetting experience. I still get very angry about that time. I was fortunate in having a family that was better off, that could help us. But mm. the loss of dignity you feel when you're signing on is really yep. deeply disturbing. And I think in many respects, although I wasn't poor, far from it, it was tough. It was tight. But at least I had an opportunity that I could move forward. And I think that, again, focused my attention on trying to give something back to the people who I belong to and the people who gave me opportunities. So it took several years through the 80s of being out of work, being the only uh, government, being the only self-employed historian on the government enterprise allowance scheme in the whole country. And then eventually getting part-time work and having to sign on again in the summer etc. But finally, in 1990, I got a temporary two-year contract at the University of Birmingham, made permanent a bit later, and I held that until I was made redundant, unfortunately, a few years ago. Uh, and then since then, writing more books, yeah, giving more that, guides? Yeah, my role at the university was twofold. It was teaching history, but also the country's only community historian, going into schools, libraries, holds the LD community groups, getting people's memories. I've got probably over 40,000 letters now, Paul, that have been sent to me, hundreds and thousands of, of photographs people have lined. I've got a massive archive in the Library of Birmingham. And I, I really, if people say to me, well, how did you become so passionate about history? And if I'd have answered that probably 30 years ago, and I says, well, from when I was a kid, I used to read historical novels like Rosemary Sutcliffe, you two probably wouldn't remember Rosemary Sutcliffe, but she was a really influential novelist about the Dark Ages. 
mm. uh, Henry Trees, Geoffrey Trees, really about the Anglo-Saxons and the Vikings. And I said, that would have been what started me off. But actually, looking back, it was mum and dad, nan and granddad, my great aunts and uncles, who both my mum and dad come from big, rumbustious, boisterous families who told yeah, stories. Yeah, I know the type. You know the type. Who I told know the stories. type. And I caught the end of the old world with Nan in a back-to-back before they moved her to a, a, a masonette uh, with a lots of older people that used to bet with us in the betting shops who knew my great-granny and granddad. So I, I was surrounded from the moments I could remember with stories about the past. And it was the stories about the people I belonged to that grabbed me because they weren't in the history books. Yeah. In my era, you didn't have anything like that. And I was very fortunate, lads, to have a, a tutor for my thesis called Dorothy Thompson. Dorothy Thompson was a top historian in her own right. She wrote about women chartists and others. But her husband, Edward Thompson, was the man that really began the whole idea of social history with his seminal book, really focusing on the West Riding, mm. the whole of West Yorkshire, which is called The Making of the English Working Class. And Dorothy Thompson gave me the confidence to believe that the stories I was told were valuable. Yeah. Because history was before that was about the elite and we were looked down upon. And without her instilling that confidence in me, and I will always value her for that, I wouldn't have become a social historian and nor would I have become a social historian without my family. Yeah. I, I like that, that you mentioned that history sort of back then was of the elite and I say I say back then with the full realisation that on your wedding yeah. day I was four <laughs> uh, you know. Thank so, but you're welcome you're welcome but yeah I mean I recall sort of history at school if we looked at something like the industrial revolution and it was all the way through all the schools I've had I've been both privately and state educated in my time and the industrial revolution has cropped up in in both of those spheres and it was always who invented the spinning jenny, the water frame, who's like, it was never the guys chucking their clogs in the machines in protest. It was... And not only not only the guys, the women. Yeah. People talk about the Industrial Revolution. Let's take the potteries where Kyle is from. Without female potters, there could never have been a stoke becoming a city. Exactly. Without mm. the women in the woolen mills of West Yorkshire, West Yorkshire could never have hit the world stage, without the women that worked in the pin factories, the button factories, the pen-making factories of Birmingham, Birmingham could never have become the city of a thousand trades. So yeah. for me, it's always been about that opening up of history to those that were overlooked. And particularly, I've been drawn throughout my research to looking at the poorer working class, because in the first stage of socialist, it was very much about the organised working class. Men, skilled usually, who were in trade unions, and then later on in the labour movement. Very much, I think, a lot of um, history today focuses on the uh, organised section of the working class. I was much more interested in the, the communal side. My family were in the trade unions, but they were not active as such. And it was very much poorer people, particularly women, had to work not only in factories and charring and taking in washing, but also being the the gaffers of the street, bringing people into line. The thing that we were yeah. most scared about growing up was if you played up in the street, an old lady looking at you and going, I know who your mother is. 
Oh, you'd be scared like that. I would knock at the door. It's the old lady coming to tell our mum. Yep. Yeah, we're with similar backgrounds, I think, possibly some years <laughs> apart. <laughs> so, having having both shared joyous childhood memories there, um, let, let's get on to what, what History Rage is about. And I know what you've come here to talk about, and you've written just several several books about as well, one of which, like I say, the audio book delivered so passionately. It was great. So I'm expecting big things here. So, Carl, would you please tell our baying mob of History Rages <laughs> out there what you wish people would just stop believing. I wish they would stop believing that gangsters are glamorous men, like some kind of fabled mafia don who is kind to children, respectful to women, thoughtful towards the elderly and looks after the poor. They're not like that. Gangsters prey upon their own. And it's really important that we recognise that... The Peaky Blinder series, no matter how pulsating, captivating and engrossing it is, and it's all those things, is a drama. It is not reality. There was no Shelby family. There was no Peaky Blinders in the 1920s in Birmingham. There was not one gang of Peaky Blinders. And the Peaky Blinders were not organised criminals. And they certainly weren't glamorous. They were definitely not glamorous. No way. Uh, it kind of leads me to first question here, but if I'm if if I've read my background on you correctly, you're actually related to one, aren't you? Yeah, my great grandfather Edward Denick, my dad's maternal grandfather, was a horrible, nasty, vicious man. He was a Peaky Blinder. He assaulted the police. The Peaky Blinders hated the police. He attacked other people on one occasion. He hit a man on the head with a shovel in a fight. When that never put him away, he picked up a meat cleaver and he cleaved it into his head. Fortunately, he didn't kill the bloke, but he got sent down for three years. He was a petty thief. My great uncles who knew him in Sparkbrook when they were youngsters, remember on one occasion he stole a side of bacon from outside of Port Butchers. Years later, Paul, I found the newspaper reference to that. And that's a that's a thrill. You know, I'm an oral historian. I believe in the power mm. of the spoken word. But when you find photographs, like of my great-grandfather showing him in the style of a Peaky Blinder, when you find then a newspaper report that fits in with what you've been told orally, there's an extra power that comes to that then. So he was a horrible, nasty man. But the worst thing that he did was he abused my great-grandmother, not just once, but on many occasions. Beat her so badly that she used to flee from him when I heard him coming home, yeah. mucky drunk. And I heard this story about her from older people from my dad's street back in the mid-80s and early 80s when I was interviewing lots of people from dad's street. And then I found newspaper, uh, then I found a newspaper report and also legal documents verifying, again, the spoken word. So Edward Denick was a horrible, nasty, violent man. He was not glamorous. He was a poor man but a poor, nasty man. Yeah, poor in both character and means. Correct. And his brother John was of the same ilk, probably even more violent, as he was the leader of the Sparkbrook slogging gang. This was the term given to the backstreet gangs of Birmingham before the name Peaky Blinder came in. We know Peaky Blinders exist, but they're not as what the BBC shows us. But who are the real Peaky Blinders? Where are they coming from? When are they? And who are they? Okay, 
what we need to understand is mid-Victorian Britain was a very different society. One, it was harder, it was more physical. There was a huge amount of poverty. And mm -hmm. it was tough living for the poor, for the working class as a whole, but the poor especially. And there's a different demography. We've got a lot of young people. The majority of the population is under 30. And that means there's lots of young men. So, on a Sunday, the Lord's Day, which is their only day off, because they're working Saturdays as well then, in the 1860s and before, they're gathering on wasteland in the big towns like Birmingham. Mm -hmm. And most of the streets have got a bit of wasteland or nearby. And they were playing rough sports, very rough sports. And they were gambling for money. Pitch and toss. Pitching yeah. a coin to a target. Whoever got it near, just chopped them up in the air. They come down heads, you collect them. Any left, the next one has to go. Or the one that was really big, and Kyle would be aware of this, and you probably would be, well, you might not be, Paul, but in the, in, in the Yorkshire and areas like Stoke, where they were very close to the countryside, they would have tossing rings. And this was a really, a really dangerous gambling game because a man would stand in the middle of the ring with two pennies on his fingers and say, I'm going to toss them for, say, let's say, 50 pence. And you'd say, right, I'll cover that for two bob, 10 pence, another 10 pence. And so the 50 pence is covered. He'd chuck it up in the air and there'd be a circle of men around him. And if it came down mm -hmm. two heads, I win. If it came down tails, you win. If not, heads and tails again. So Sunday, the Lord's Day, there's gambling and rough sports. And there's still middle class people living within central Birmingham. They haven't all fled upwind to the well-drained area of Edgbaston in the southwest of Birmingham. And they're going to church and they're coming back from church and chapel and they see these big groups of young men. First of all, that's intimidating. Mm -hmm. And secondly, they're gambling on the Lord's Day. And thirdly, they're engaging in rough sports. The police forces are new. They've only just came in from the late 1830s and 40s. And at first, the police are really reluctant to clamp down on working class street culture. Think about it. There's no gardens for the poor. Yeah. There's no parks. There's no recreation grounds. The street and the wasteland is their playground. And in the late 1860s, my research has shown definitively that the middle class elite of Birmingham put pressure on the police to put down pitch and toss. There's a crusade against it, as one newspaper calls it. Yeah. That, Paul, that, Kyle, leads to a reaction. These are tough young lads. They're physical. And the only thing they've got that they can say they're better at is fighting. The only thing that they own in a class-biased society is their street. The street mm. is them, their families, their kinship, their networks, their neighbours. So you get the emergence of these gangs defending their pitch and they turn against the police, but then they start fighting each other. Again, in a society when young men own nothing or very little, what can they boast about? Our street's harder than your street. Yeah. And the street becomes a living thing. Now, I'm not necessarily defending any of this, but if we seek to understand it, perhaps you can understand some of the problems that we face with today. And I wish, this is another rant now, Paul, I wish politicians, instead of canting and talking about this, that and the other, actually talk to some of us who've researched violence in the past and realised that you need to provide facilities for young people in poorer neighbourhoods. Now, mm. that is not to say that because you're poor, you're going to become violent or a criminal. But 
there is no doubt that poverty does play a part in encouraging some young men to turn to violence. Yeah. So from the late 1860s, these gangs emerge in Birmingham, and they do in Manchester and Salford, where they're called Scotlers. In London, parts of North London, Clerkenwell, Hoxton on the edge of the East End, the East End, Bethnal Green, South London around the Elephant and Castle and Walworth, Bermondsey. They eventually become known as hooligans. They're also there in the corner men of Liverpool. There's little gangs in Leeds and Sheffield, Stoke, yep. but they are not, there is not the rampant ruffianism that bedevils and blights the lives of the hard-working, decent poor as there is in Manchester, Salford, Birmingham, Liverpool and much of London. Okay, so when we look at the term, we look, we've mentioned the term Peaky Blinder, yeah. um, which has got absolutely nothing to do with razor blades and flat caps. It is, as I'm led to believe it, is a, it, it's a style of dress. It's a style of appearance. Uh, uh, okay, so these gangs that I've been discussing, from 1872, they're known as sloggers or slogging gangs. From the old pugilistic word to strike with a fierce blow to slog. And there are lots of slogging gangs all over old Birmingham. There's the Barford Street Gang, one of the first ones. There's the Park Street Gang, which is an Irish Brummie gang at first, which has uh, really a sectarian feud with the Milk Street Gang just down the road. Overshadowed by Selfridges today, those two streets are. There's the White House Street Gang. Actually, my mum come out of White House Street in Aston would never have known about this gang. They were another fearsome gang. There was the Charles Henry Street Gang. There was the Barn Street Gang. There were loads of gangs. From 1890... A new term comes in to describe sluggers and members of slugging gangs. Peaky Blinder. And it occurs in the press for the first time in March 1890. An inoffensive chap called George Eastwood goes into the Rainbow Pub on the corner of High Street, Borsley and Adley Street. It's still there. Mm. And he's a teetotaler. But he must like a pub, but unfortunately he's picked the wrong night. Three men with an evil reputation come in and start picking on him for drinking a soft drink. What are you doing drinking tack that like that for? One of them says, drinking rubbish like that. Another one pushes him and tries to trip him up. Then they offer him out for a fight. Of course, he's not going to go. Any road, they leave yeah. about quarter to 11. And he must have given it 15 minutes. And he's left. And he has to turn left under two railway bridges, which are still there, a lonely part of the street. And they come out of the darkness and they beat him brutally. They punch him. They kick him with hobnail boots when he's on the ground and they slash him repeatedly with the feared weapon of the hooligans of London, the Scotlers of Manchester and Salford and the sloggers of Birmingham. Their belts. Thick leather belts yeah. with heavy buckles wrapped around the wrist, caught between the thumb and fingers and held in the palm, leaving about eight inches, which is then buckled and they slashed and they slashed. George was beaten so brutally that he was in hospital for three weeks and had to have an operation called Trepanin, part of the skull cut out. Now, yeah. on the following week, it was reported that this assault was carried out by the gang of Peaky Blinders. That's the first time the term is used in the press. It suggests to me that it's already been used on the street, but we'll never be able mm -hmm. to prove that. So the term comes in in 1890. It's interchangeable virtually interchange well no it is interchangeable with sloggers peaky blinders are members of slogging gangs the slogging gang term continues to be used so do sloggers but why are they called peaky blinders and in the series 
it's because they have disposable safety razor blades stitched into the peaks of their cap, which they take off in a fight and supposedly slash across the eyes of their enemies blinding them. Well, there's a problem with that, isn't there? The bridge of the nose. How are they going to yeah. reach the eyes? The story I'd heard growing up, and a lot of other older brummies had heard growing up, was they slashed the foreheads. Hence, blood went in the eyes to blind them. So they could be, in the old West Midlands speech, doffed up, beaten yeah. up. Now, the reality was very different. First of all, disposable safety razor blades were not patented by King Gillette in America until just after the start of the 20th century. They were not sold in great numbers in England until 1910, by which time the Peaky Blinders had gone. And moreover, they were too expensive for poorer men, who would go to the barbers once a week or every fortnight to have a cutthroat razor shave. So they weren't used. Secondly, think about it. A flat cap is soft. I'm going to take it off. Right? And I'm going to slash you, Paul. So I take me right, I'm a right-handed man, I've put me hand up here to get the, peak, the the flat cap off, soft at the back. What have I done to my body, Paul? Opened it up for it's me to take you right out. for yeah. you to come straight in. So am I going to say to you, Paul, Kyle, hang on a minute, let me just take the cap off and fold it so I can slash it. Yeah. No, it's not going to happen, no. is it, Kyle? Nope, definitely not, not. So one, it's not feasible. Two, the razor blades weren't around. Three, it never happened. Why were they called Peaky Blinders? Well, the first Peaky Blinders, lads, didn't wear flat mm-hmm. caps. They wore a hat known as a billycock. It was a working man's bowler hat. And yep. I've been told this by some very old people that I interviewed back in the 1980s. And then I found a couple of rare first-hand accounts which really brought it to light, and photographs in the West Midlands Police Museum from the Birmingham City Police, which was one of the first police forces to photograph criminals. And what they would do, they'd take off the bowler hat, wet the brim, hold it over a fire and make it into a funnel. Why did they do that? They had closely cropped hair, so they could show off their scars from police staves and the beltings of other sloggers. But most of them, or many of them, liked to have a quiff at the front. Very short hair with a quiff. I've got photographs from the police museum mm. showing men exactly like that. And with the billycock. Pulled over one eye, the funnel part over one eye, to show off the quiff on the other side. When the flat cap comes in, the same fashion happens. They pull the flat cap's peak over one eye. Hence, the peak is blinding the cap. And again, I interviewed older men who were born in the 1890s who told me that was why they were called that. It was a fashion. What we're talking there is not is the Peaky Blinder isn't the name of a criminal gang. The Peaky Blinder is a style of appearance, typically like where we might use chav or yeah. goth, yeah, or, or something like that. Back yeah, in the past. Teddy Boys. Yeah, Teddy Boys. Yes, their fashion was their fashion was the, the peak, the cap, flat cap. Before that, the billy cap. They would have a a thin kind of scarf pulled round the neck and if it knotted, known as a daff, they would wear bell-bottom trousers. They're often called in the Birmingham press the bell-bottom crew. As often mm. as they're called Peaky Blinders and Sloggers. But we've got to bear in mind these are poor men. Most of them were labourers or street traders, people that were yeah. in irregular work, 
Sometimes if they were in regular work, they didn't have good, well, well they, they had poor pay. So they haven't got the money to spend on expensive clothes. It's a fantasy yeah. to think these backstreet gangsters were major organised criminals. They fought each other. They battled each other. They baited the police. That's the term they like to use. And they bullied. And I want to come back to this point again, Paul. They bullied the hard-working, decent and respectable poor amongst whom they lived. They are not meant to be admired. Well, that leads us neatly into Kyle's first question. I thought he'd been quiet. Yeah. <laughs> We've already discussed the uh, quite brutal origin of the first time the word Peaky Blinders is used. Um, but what other examples of the thuggery of these groups of people that should really horrify us rather than attract us to really good point that you make kyle killings of policemen pc lines killed in 1875 in a riot two plainclothes officers had arrested a thief from a pub and as they left they were surrounded by a mob the local gang and others pelted them with bricks and with them smashed bricks that they found on wasteland and struck them at the police a sergeant called Fletcher went to help them. They managed to get away, pulling their prisoner with them. They looked back, Fletcher was felled. PC Lyons was walking towards them. They said, you've got to go and help Fletcher. He, this brave man, went in with his stave in the midst of this mob. And he, he, he bestrode Fletcher on the ground. He managed to crawl away. And then some brave eyewitnesses said it was like rats attacking him from every angle. And one of them, stabbed him in the neck and as he fell dying well he would die later but it was a it was a fatal blow they kicked him about the floor another occasion turn of the 20th century pc blinko is walking down a road in borsalif and there's the two brothers cherry following him they were annoyed with him because the day before he'd gone with another officer to, to hand over a minor notice for a minor crime. And mm. eyewitnesses said they were slinking behind him. They hadn't got the guts to face him, Kyle. And they ran at him from behind. One of them had got a meat cleaver and they cleaved him from behind into his head. Unbelievably, there was a horse and carriage and the, the driver was alerted by the screams of women. They picked this man, the poor copper, up, and again they kicked him on the floor. They then ran off and rushed him to hospital where the skills of the surgeon saved him, although he had to have a metal plate in his head. They then yeah. ran up the hill to the Mosley Road, across the Mosley Road, down to the Ladypool Road where my family on my dad's side come from, to a pub we used to call the Wrexham, but its proper name was the George. I drank in the George, and the police cornered him in the, in the George, and there was a fierce fight. Can you imagine? One of them's got a meat cleaver that's bloodied by one of their colleagues. What can the police do? They've got to fight back. They have no option. Mm -hmm. PC Gunter was bricked to death. PC Snipe, bricked to death. At one stage, I think it was in 1898, there was something like just under 700 policemen on the beat in Birmingham. That year, there were nearly 700 assaults on the police. So if you're a copper on the beat, lads, you're going to get done at least once that year. But some of them have been attacked four, five, six times in the past. So yeah. that's the kind. And the, on top of that, what we've got is that they are horrible and brutal to their neighbours. There's a family called Sheldon's 
who were involved in some of the worst crimes in late 19th, early 20th century Birmingham. They're supposed to have been the seeds for the idea of the Shelbys, because they're supposed to yeah. be related to them on the maternal side of Stephen Knight. And they're portrayed as glamorous gangsters. They weren't. They were horrible, nasty men. On one occasion, one of the Sheldons was coming out of a pub with his pal, and they took an offence towards an, uh, an Irish chap, an old man, and they beat him up and down the street. His daughter come out, tried to stop him. They beat her down and kicked her up and down the street. So that's the kind of violence we're talking about. Policemen being yeah. killed, decent people being scared and being preyed upon. We're, we're not here talking about, you know, a, a an organised crime gang taking on another organised crime gang and just villains doing over other villains. These, the, these are blights on their community, right? Right to the core, aren't they? They are blights on the community. They, they're fighting each other, as I've mentioned. They attack the police. They're bullying the people amongst whom they live. They're engaged in petty protection, not large gangs. So the, some of the sentences that were passed to them were so lenient. They could get done for an attack for two quid, for a fine of 40 shillings. Or if not, they go down to prison for a short time. So what they would do, go to the local pubs and shops and intimidate the shopkeepers and publicans to put the money in to free their pal. But that's as much as it got. They were not organised crime gangs. They are not meant to be admired. They were not glamorous. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable, too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. So the show does feature quite a few real-life gangsters um, that, that are in there. You've got Billy Kimber, you've got Alfie Solomon, you've got Darby Sabini. Now, these people all existed, not necessarily where and when the show does. Um, but what, what can you tell us about them? Okay, so my research on the Peaky Blinders really began with stories I'd heard growing up. Then it really expanded when I was researching my doctoral thesis where my first chapter was really about Birmingham in the late 19th century, praised as the city of a thousand trades, praised as the best government city in the world, but no mention that it was also one of the most violent cities in England and the city of the Peaky mm. Blinders. So I first started researching the real Peaky Blinders back in the late 70s, early 1980s. I first researched the real organised crime gangsters in 86, 87. I was writing a history of illegal bookmaking, I travelled the country. My dad was president of the Birmingham Bookmakers Association, although we were no longer involved in the game. And I wanted to interview people from the race courses to find out what race course bookmaking was like. Because we were backstreet bookies and betting shop bookies. We never went racing. They put me, dad put me in touch with some old bookmakers down south. They put me in touch with 
Alfie Solomon's younger brother, Simeon Solomon, who I interviewed right. in a pub in North London in 1987. They put me in touch with a man called George Langham, sorry, a man called Dave Langham, respectable bookmaker, lovely, honest man, but whose dad, George, real name Angelo Giannicoli, had been one of the main right-head men of Derby Sabini. Although, unlike Sabini, he only used his fists. He didn't use mm. a shiv, a knife or a razor. So, back in the 86-87 period, I was interviewing people who were the first ones to tell me about Billy Kimber. Now, Billy Kimber, in the series, is portrayed as a small Londoner, isn't he? Uh, yeah, quite smartly dressed, yeah. smooth guy. He was smartly dressed, but he wasn't a small Londoner. He was a big burly Brummie from Summer Lane. Mm. He had been a pinky <laughs> blinder. <laughs> he hated the police. He attacked the police. He was a petty thief. But like some of the most vicious of the Peaky Blinders, he joined what were known as the Brummagen Boys. This was a loose collection of little gangs of six, seven and eight who would go racing in the Midlands of the North, thanks to the extension of the train system, to pickpocket and to bully bookmakers for money. Bribery. Blackmailing. Mm -hmm. Extortion. You look after ourselves, we're going to give you a belting. And by just before the First World War, Kimber had brought together this loose collection of rogues from Birmingham into a slightly better organised gang known as the Birmingham Gang. England's first organised gang that was controlling the racketeering on the racecourse in the Midlands and the North. Why? Well, on the racecourses, people are carrying cash, bookies and punters. Two, yep. there's no, virtually no racecourse security. And three, there was only a few local police hired to keep order. They are too scared of the Birmingham gangs who were allied with the local Leeds gangs in Yorkshire and the police just left them alone. After the First World War, racing is stopped virtually in the First World War, bar at Newmarket and here and there. But once racing begins again, just like all other sports, there was this pent-up passion for going to sports yeah. events. Huge crowds at racing. In the Midlands and the North, the Birmingham gang led by Billy King, but his overall leader, there's lots of little governors as well, but they take control again with a rod of iron in the middle of the north. But down south, where there's more race courses and more money, there's mayhem. Dodger Mullins comes in with his Bethnal Green mob. Joe Sabini, the brother of Derby Sabini, comes in with a little mob and others. And Kimber spots an opportunity to take over down south. By now he's moved to London, he abandoned his Birmingham wife Maud to live and die in poverty and their two children, Maud and Annie, were brought to court. And he's moved to London just before the First World War. He's palled up very cleverly with the Elephant Boys from South London and George Sage, a gangster from North London. And they're a vicious crowd of the Elephant Boys, aren't they? <laughs> so the Elephant Boys and Brian MacDonald, who's the nephew of the MacDonalds, Walt, Walt and Wag in particular, has written tremendous books on the Elephant Boys and the Gangs of London. Mm. So, with London allies, the Birmingham Gang takes over down south and they extort money from the bookmakers and control the pickpocketing. Kyle, you want to be a pickpocket, you and your little mob from Stoke today? At yeah. Yeah, well, go to your you Yeah, hop on the train, yeah. But you've got to make sure you pay your tribute to Billy Kimber first. Because if ah. not, you and your mob are going to get turned over. So there's a lot of money coming in. You have to pay for the stall that the bookie stands on. You have to pay for the chalk that you chalk up the runners with. You have to pay for the sponge and the water that it's dipped into to rub the runners off on the last <laughs> race. 
So there's a big racket going. And then if you want to have a good pitch where there's the most people, you pay to stand there. Now, what yeah. the Birmingham gang and their London allies do is they're anti-Semitic, they're racist. And they extort extra money from the East End Jewish bookmakers and other Jewish bookmakers. One of whom is Alfie Solomon. Not Solomon's, as in the series. And now, in the series, let me ask you a question. How is Alfie Solomon's dress? More Jewish than Jehovah himself, right. really, isn't he? So, Orthodox <laughs> Jewish. He's... Uh, yep. My dad was Ishmael, Ishmael, I think, with Orthodox Jewish ringlets. And he's supposed to be from a Yiddish background. Do you think an Orthodox Jewish man would have been a gangster? They'd have been in the synagogue studying the Torah. The real Alfie yeah. Solomon was a North London Jew from an Anglo-Jewish background. He was born and bred in England. He actually served honourably in the First World War, as opposed to Kimber and others who deserted. His mum and dad were born in England. I've got his grandparents on both sides in England going right back into the 19th century. And what happens is, <clears throat> I was told this by his brother, who wouldn't let me record him, so I had to write scribble notes, that one of your mob looked at me and says, it's all your lot fault. Simi, Simeon Solomon. He used to bet under the name Sidney Lewis. I said, Simeon, why, Simi, why did you bet under the name Sidney Lewis? I knew the answer. He said, don't be stupid. He said, I'm a Jewish guy. Who's going to bet with Simeon Solomon? I had to take a name that looked more British, Sidney Lewis. And he looked at me in his tough North London pub. He went, it's all your lot's fault. I said, who? He said, you caused all the trouble. I said, who? He said, you lot from up north. I didn't want to upset him and tell him, tell him Paul, I wasn't a northerner. I was a Midlander. <laughs> yes. I thought discretion was the better form of valour. <laughs> he said, they beat up, you lot beat up my brother. I then found... Uh, a first-hand account by a man called, man called Master Young, top referee from a Jewish background, boxing referee, who described in his life story what happened. And it fitted in with what I was told. Again, that bringing together the oral and other sources. Mm. And a man called Thomas Armstrong, horrible, violent, brutal man from the Birmingham gang, wanted a bet on the nod. In other words, he wanted a credit bet. If it wins, he wants paying. If it loses, is he going to pay up? You'll never see him again. Never see him again. So he wants another cheap bet. Solomon refused to take it. It won. He refused to pay out. Armstrong took off his binoculars, smashed them into the face of Alfie Solomon, who fell backwards off his stool. And then Armstrong smashed his face in with his boots. That started the first major organised gang war in England between two gangs from different cities, the Birmingham gang and the Sabini gang. Because, as Alfie Solomon's brother Simeon told me, and as other older bookmakers told me, he turned, Alfie Solomon turned for support to the Jewish governor, sorry, to the governor of the Jewish East End, a mysterious character I've done a lot of research on called Edward Emanuel. He's been a hard man, but he's moved on, he's been running Spielers, which are illegal gambling clubs, but where cards are played, and now he's mm -hmm. moving up in the world, and he's set up a printing company, and he wants to start printing the tickets the bookmakers give to their punters to say what number they are in the book that the bookmakers have, in which they write down the bets. He wants to set a printing company up to make the printing lists of the runners. If he can get rid of Kimber and his London allies, he can take over. And he can go mm. legitimate, Paul. 
because then nobody's going to say no to him. So he knows he's got his own gang of Anglo-Jewish hoodlums. They're not strong enough. Alfie Solomon joins them. So he turns to an up-and-coming Anglo-Italian gangster called Darby Sabini. Now, in the series, how is Darby Sabini portrayed? Yeah, I would say a stereotypical mafioso. Yeah, far from it. He used to wear a flat cap and an open-neck shirt. And he spoke English in the series with an Italian accent, didn't he? <laughs> he wasn't like that. His dad was not from Sicily, from northern Italy, but came to England as a boy. His mother was an Englishwoman, Eliza Hanley. Darby Sabini, real name Ottavio, grew up in Clerkenwell. Yes, in the Italian quarter, the Italian, Little Italy as it was called, around Saffron Hill. But he always saw himself as an Englishman. He was Anglo-Italian. He spoke with a London accent. He was not well-dressed. He was not a Mafia Don, but he was the second organised gang leader in England. He brought together a powerful gang of Anglo-Jewish gangsters, Anglo-Italian and men of solely English background. And after a vicious war, eventually the Birmingham gang was outwitted by Edward Emmanuel. They withdrew to the Midlands of the North. Kimber pulls away from gangsterism. And Sabini also pulls away under pressure, for, I think, from his wife, moves to the south coast mm -hmm. to Hove to gangster retirement or semi-retirement. But although his gang is pushed off the race course in the mid-20s by strong police action and by the race course authorities' security personnel, they regroup in London. They blackmail shopkeepers, tradesmen and women. They blackmail restaurateurs in their own districts of Clerkenwell, King's Cross. But where they make the big money, at the end of the First World War, Soho sees nightclubs emerging. And many yeah. of them are illegal, selling booze illegally. So the Sabini gang takes over Soho, extorts money from the nightclub owners and Spieler owners, ends up in wars with the Elephant Boys, the Bethnal Green mob, the Hoxton mob, the type and the Titanics, but basically becomes the prototype for all organised gangs in London thereafter. Whereas, by contrast, bereft of the leadership of Kimba, with no nightclubs in Birmingham, no spielers in Birmingham, with the racecourses scattered around the Midlands and the Birmingham police taking strong action, the Birmingham gang disappears by the Second World War. Do you remember the Italian family of gangsters, the Changrettas? Yes. And they killed the father and son, and then the brother comes back from New York, Luca. Yeah. Changretta. The real Changrettas were not gangsters. They're descendants of friends of mine. The real Changrettas were an honourable family. Martino Changretta came to Birmingham as an indentured worker for a better off Italian who went back to his village every now and then, villages of Atene, Galinara and Puccinesco, in effect, to buy young boys to bring them back to traipse streets selling ice cream. And eventually paid off what he owed and more. And he married an English woman. And he became a demolition man and became a foreman. And in 1921, he's clearing the space in what is now Centenary Square for the Hall of Memory. And racist letters appeared in the Birmingham press attacking why is an Italian got this job. And he soon shut him up. He wrote in the next week. He was a naturalised Englishman. He'd taken his first name, Martino, as his surname is called now Mr. Martin. He said, I fought for this country in the Second South African War. And when the Hall of Memory opens, it will have a sacred book of remembrance. And one of the last names in that book 
will be my oldest son. The only remaining son of Martin and Amy Changretta, later on Martin, was killed after he and his regiment had landed in Italy with the Allied invasion. Well, wow. It's really important for me to get that message over that the Changretas were and are their descendants. There's nobody of that name left now, but they were an honourable family who did good for our city. So we've got the sort of the grain of the idea, but what did the show get right? Well, it's difficult to say that they've got anything right yeah. in particular. What they've done is very cleverly taken a variety of names of people and places and gangs and brought them together and thrown them into this powerful pot called drama. So the name Peaky Blinder infused with fear and violence and gangsterism is brought from the 1890s into the 1920s. The names of Darby Sabini, Billy Kimber, Alfie Solomon are brought in. They were real gangsters, but they are dramatised, they are glamorised. The Garrison Pub, for example, which is the headquarters of the Peaky Blinder gang in the series, it's a large boozer, isn't it? Like a late Victorian drinking emporium. The real garrison was very different. A small backstreet pub on the corner of Whitton Street and Garrison Lane. Now, what had happened, I think, where, and I can't prove this because I don't know the author at all, is that the Sheldon family, who was supposed to have given the grain of the idea for the Shelbys, from a story his dad told him when he was a young man, were involved in the worst gang war in Birmingham's history until recently. And that was known as the Garrison Lane Vendetta. I'd heard about this growing up and I've done a lot of research on it. I interviewed people that knew men that were involved in it. The Sheldons were a nasty gang of criminals and ne'er-do-wells. One of their members, Coley Joan, boasted in court, I've never done a day's work and I don't intend to ever do a day's work. They fell out with a hard local man called Billy Beach, who fought fairly with his fists. They attacked him with revolvers, bayonets and loads of weapons. And he always then would go a few days later after he'd been beaten up and catch one or two of them and beat them up. And eventually he got a gang around him. And it was known as the Garrison Lane Vendetta. It eventually ended with strong police action and some long sentences in 1912. But that Garrison Lane Vendetta was regarded by many as the last of the Peaky Blinders. And Samuel Sheldon, one of the brothers was not a glamorous gangster. He was five foot one and a quarter. And I've got a photo of him from the police records showing him with the billy cock of the original Peaky Blinders. I've got him being arrested in the 1880s for slogging and he becomes an original Peaky Blinder. So what's really important, Kyle, is that to bear in mind that, yes, there are real names, mm. there are real places, and there's often real events, but they are dramatised. They're not reality. Yes. So if, as we say, the Peaky Blinders then not an organised crime outfit, but a bunch of thugs, a bunch of disparate thugs not even working together, who are the organised crime syndicates of Victorian and Edwardian Britain? There aren't any. Not on the scale that we see from the 1920s. What we really see in the 1920s is from the Birmingham gang becomes England's first mm -hmm. organised gang, albeit semi-organised. And that's yeah. why... My second book was called The Legacy, because 
because the legacy of the Peaky Blinders was some of the most violent Peaky Blinders were part of the Birmingham gang. And that their extortion and blackmailing of Jewish bookmakers and other Southern bookmakers led to the rise of the Sabini gang. So there's no real organised gangs as such in the late 19th century. There are street gangs, there are criminals who might be in a little gang here and there, but there's nothing like we see in the series. Yeah, the series makes a big thing as well of these guys uh, and their experiences of the First World War. And you mentioned that Alfie Solomon served with distinction um, in the First World War. What's this community of criminals and ne'er do wells and so forth doing? during the First World War? I think it's a really important point because it's been said that by people associated with the series that this young group of young men came back from the First World War made more violent and traumatised by their experiences. The Sheldons didn't fight in the First World War. They were too old. Most of the Peaky Blinders were too old because they were dis- the gangs had disappeared mm. as such. They're still horrible men and little gangs, but by 1910, the Birmingham newspapers are writing about the Peaky Blinders in the past tense. So let me give you an example. In 1915, one Birmingham newspaper said, what's happened to the gangs? Well, they're either working in the munitions factories, earning good money, or they're fighting at the front. One man, he's typical of that, Henry Lightfoot. In 1895, he's the only individual I've come across that's actually called a Peaky Blinder in court. He, his brother was a leader of a gang in around Highgate and Borsal Heath. He was a Peaky Blinder. He was a petty thief. Of the scale that one of his thefts was 12 scrubbing brushes, pigeons, footballs. Yeah. He attacked the police regularly. He attacked other people. But from about 1906, the local police are saying he's trying to change his life. And in 1914, within days of the outbreak of war, at the age of 41 and married... So he didn't have to join up because of his age and his marital status. He volunteered. Old habits die hard. He tried to... He was insubordinate to a, a, a non-commissioned officer. Basically, he was going to hit him. Got thrown out. He joined up again the next year. Again, he was sent to the glass house, the army prison, mm-hmm. for insubordination and fighting. Comes out and he fights in the first and second days of the bloody battle of the Somme and he's badly injured. When the series was first mooted, one of his descendants wrote and said, he didn't come back from the world war a more violent man, he came back a changed man. Now, many of these gangsters didn't fight in the First World War, they were deserters. Kimber deserted, went to Ireland. Why? Because racing continued in Ireland. Yeah. I've got him being arrested for pickpocketing in Dublin at a train station. So the idea that there's a, these groups of young men who are traumatised by the First World War, which turns them into gangsters, is wrong. They were bloody and brutal before the First World War. Lovely. And the men who formed the gangs in 1919, 20, 21, 22, were not young. Kimber was born in 1882. He's 40 by 1922. Sabini's a bit younger, but in his 30s. So they're not lads of 19, 20, 21, 22. Now, that's not to say that the series isn't important for showing the effects of what we now call post-traumatic stress. But it didn't lead to the rise of gangsterism. These men were horrible before the First World War and they were horrible after the First World War. And the First World War didn't change them because most of them didn't go. That's right. A lot of them didn't go. 
A lot of them did not. I wouldn't be able to say most, but a lot of them didn't. So what causes these slogging gangs, these different uh, street thugs smashing into each other? What causes them to fade out? What changes? And, and again, it's a, it's a really important question, that, and that's one that has ramifications for us looking at violent crime and violence between young men today. There's a number of factors coming together in Birmingham and Manchester and Salford in particular that are organic. So first of all, let's take Birmingham as an example. In 1899, the Peaky Blinder problem is so bad that the Birmingham Council appoints a new chief constable, Charles Porter Rafter. In the series, Major Campbell, the Northern Irish Protestant officer brought over to put down the Peaky Blinders, mm -hmm. is loosely connected to Charles Horton Rafter, who was a Belfast Protestant, but he wasn't a sectarian like Campbell. His deputy, Michael McManus, was a Catholic from Mayo, who'd worked his way up from the age of 18 when he came to Birmingham to become deputy chief constable. Rafter realised the Birmingham police was on demand and he needed young, fit coppers. So he embarked on a swift recruitment campaign. And the story goes in the Birmingham City Police, he asked three things of his men, of the recruits. Can you read? Can you write? Can you? Fight. Fight. So they had to fight. And there are tantalising hints of this when policemen are retiring in the 20s and 30s in Birmingham in the newspapers. It was a battle on the streets when we first started. They start then to go out in twos so they can take the fight to the Peaky Blinders. They have to be five foot ten. They're tall. They're well built. They have to do PT, physical training. The Peaky Blinders are mostly like my great-grandfather, Edward five foot four. They're small, mm. rummies. So, strong policing, stronger sentencing. Rafter says to the magistrates, any attack on the police now must be the maximum sentencing, sentence you can pass, which is six months. Any severe attack must go to a higher court. So they start sending down the criminals for longer. Thirdly, and this is something that I don't think has ever been picked up before, is that the stronger policing gives confidence to working class people to come out as witnesses. Mm. They were too scared before. 1875, when PC Lyons was killed, the man who was hanged for his murder was a chap called Corcoran. A young woman gave evidence against him. She was stabbed by Corcoran's mother and sister in a revenge attack. People didn't want to give evidence. But at the turn of the 20th century, there's a couple of examples. A young woman called Hannah Chaplin is, sees a big attack by Peaky Blinders on a group of men passing by, individuals. And they run off when the police come. She follows them and points them out to the police. She lives in the same street as the ringleader. On another occasion at Key Hill in 1905, a Peaky Blinder called Bruff is arrested by a policeman. He beats him up with his mates. They try to drag Bruff away. Passers-by jump in and help. There's a fierce struggle, but eventually, thanks to the passers-by, the three men are arrested. So, stronger policing, stronger sentencing, public confidence, particularly working-class confidence in the police. But yeah. there's a number of other things happening organically. Well-meaning clergymen and women are setting up what we would now call youth clubs, many yeah. of which have football teams associated with them. Some set up boxing clubs, Father Jay in the Old Nickel in the East End of London, Father Pinchard in Hill Street, a tough part of Birmingham. 
So there's sport coming in now. And of a weekend now, on a Saturday afternoon, because now work tends to finish on a Saturday dinner time, on a Saturday afternoon, young lads of 12, 13, 14, 15 are playing football on wasteland, not fighting. You're not so gambling. the next generation of peakies are not coming through. On top of that, just as the gangs are disappearing, Kyle, a new form of entertainment emerges. I, my generation would call it the pictures. Yeah. The youngsters would call it the cinema. And they're going the pictures two or three nights a week. So there's all these factors coming together that lead to the end of the reign of ruffians, the reign of the Peaky Blinders. That's not to say there still aren't horrible men and there's little gangs. There are. But the rampant backstreet ruffianism that had bedeviled and blighted the lives not only of the police, but also of the hard-working poor was over. And that was shown when Rafter died in 35 in office and as a knight. Thousands upon thousands of working class brummies turned out in the ball ring to show their respects at his memorial service at St Martin's in the ball ring. I defy you to tell me who your local chief constable is today. I couldn't tell you at all. No, nope, not at all. No. Thousands. I've got a photo in my book, Paul. You'll look, you can look at that photograph. It's rammed. It goes back 40, 50, 60 deep. Why did they do that? Because he cleared up the black spots. The poor were not the black spots. It was the Peaky Blinders that were. Oh, thank you very much, Carl. Uh, I'm not sure whether this has enhanced or destroyed my viewing of Series 5, but uh, I'm going to go with enhanced. Uh, But that has really brought alive a dark underbelly of Birmingham, which leads me to want to visit again and take in the locations now that I know even more. Uh, And I see as well that I've got another couple of your books to be reading. So thank you very much (laughs) for for coming on. Thank you you both. Well, thank you for inviting me. You're welcome. If you would like to know more about Carl's work, then you should start by reading his excellent books on The Real Peaky Blinders, as well as the wealth of other books that he's authored in his career. And we'll have links to those in the History Rage bookshop. Well, ladies and gentlemen, I hope you've enjoyed this episode. Uh, you can follow us on Twitter at History Rage or individually. I am at Paul Bavel. I'm at Kyle G History. And if you'd like to support us on Patreon, you're really helping us give a little therapy to our historical community there. And uh, your £5 per month will get you episodes three months in advance. And of course, the coveted History Rage mug, the must-have accessory for all kitchen cupboards everywhere. But until next week, dear ragers, stay angry. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.